I think he really wanted to have the experience of being in combat, get that down on paper so that people back home would know the rigors that the, the men overseas were going through and what they were sacrificing for their country. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. Ernie Pyle is the best-known World War II correspondent. He dove in and out of foxholes to chronicle the plight of the average American doughboy, and when he was killed by Japanese machine gun fire in April 1945, the commanding general mourned the loss of a man who had made, quote, such a great contribution to the morale of our foot soldier. But Pyle was not, of course, the only journalist to document the horrors of the conflict that killed tens of millions of people. A generation of readers learned about the travails of the United States Marine Corps by reading Guadalcanal Diary, a 1943 memoir that recounts the early stages of the months-long battle on the southwestern Pacific Island. The author was Richard Tregascus, a reporter assigned by the International News Service to cover the Solomon Islands campaign. On this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, we review Tregascus's career with Ray Boomhauer, the senior editor of the Indiana Historical Society Press and the author of Richard Tregascus, Reporting Under Fire, From Guadalcanal to Vietnam. Well, Ray, thank you for joining us to talk about your book, Richard Tregascus, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam, which was published last November by the University of New Mexico Press. And our listeners may be familiar with the World War II correspondent Ernie Pyle, the folksy columnist for the Scripps Howard newspaper chain who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1944 and was killed by enemy fire in 1945. You previously wrote a book on Ernie Pyle titled The Soldier's Friend, A Life of Ernie Pyle. But how did you learn about Tregascus, and why do you think he is worthy of a biography? Well, I've been interested in war correspondence since I was in high school, and I remember reading Guadalcanal Diary, probably uh, Tregascus's best-known book at that time. And as you mentioned before, I wrote about Ernie Pyle. I, I've also written about another World War II correspondent, uh, Robert Sherrod, who wrote for Time Life magazine and followed the U.S. Marine Corps through the Central Pacific during the war. So he was kind of like the uh, Ernie Pyle, the Marine Corps. So I thought about uh, kind of completing my, what I'm jokingly calling my World War II correspondent trilogy. And I thought of uh, Tregascus, and I was pressed by the wide range of his activities during World War II. And in addition, I discovered in doing some initial research on him that we share a birthday. So it seems fated that I would write about him uh, uh, for my uh, next book, and, which I did. And I was glad I did because he's one of those, uh, I consider kind of the bravest of the brave war correspondents during the war, considering all he went through and just the scope of his travels during the war impressed me greatly. Starting out in the Pacific, uh, being involved in some of the early key 
battles uh, in that theater, then going on to uh, cover the invasion of Sicily, also the invasion of Italy, and uh, coming uh, up against some uh, tough tough uh, situations uh, during his travels. And finally, kind of, uh, he was beating the odds quite a bit in the Pacific, but he uh, finally fell and was wounded uh, severely by a German shell in Italy. And uh, after that, after writing Guadalcanal Diary, which is a bestseller, Invasion Diary, uh, which was also a bestselling book about his time in Sicily and Italy, you think he had done enough, particularly being very severely wounded as he was. But he went back into action. You know, he had to see for himself, as one of his friends, Robert Considine, said. Uh, both of them uh, wrote for the International News Service during the war. So um, that was what drew me to him and to his life and to his exploits during the war. Well, and that's a great way to kind of open this up because I was thinking as I was reading your book, I teach journalism, and when my students are writing feature stories, I always remind them, ask sources about their motivations. Why does that person do what they do? And as you were just describing, why would Tregascus risk his life time and again? He must have thought this was very important. So to that point, your book opens with a quote from his invasion diary in 1943 that may tell us a little about his motivation in war reporting. He says, quote, the lure of the front is like an opiate. After abstinence and the tedium of workaday life, its attraction becomes more and more insistent. Perhaps the hazards of battle, perhaps the danger itself, stir the imagination and give transcendent meanings to things ordinarily taken for granted, end quote. So what does that quote tell us about why he risked his life to cover the war? What can you tell us about his motivations? Well, he was motivated by uh, a sense of duty, really a double sense of duty. He was very patriotic and was very disappointed that because of his height, he was probably one of the tallest war correspondents, more than six feet, five inches, poor eyesight. And also he was dealing uh, with diabetes during the war. He had just learned uh, right after uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed that he suffered from this family uh, debilitating illness. So he's turned down by the draft, very disappointed in this, almost suicidal, he, he notes in his uh, memoirs. And uh, wanted to really, uh, you know, do his bit for the war. He was able to do that uh, as a war correspondent for the International News Service. He was going to originally be sent to Australia, but they decided to go ahead and send him to Hawaii to cover uh, fleet operations there. And I think he really wanted to get um, have uh, the experience of being in combat, get that down on paper so that people back home would know uh, the rigors that the, the men overseas were going through, uh, what they were sacrificing uh, for their country, and trying to get that on down on paper, and as best he could, uh, despite the censorship of the day, get the stories of the fighting men back to the home front. And so you're mentioning the rigors that those men overseas were going through, and different war correspondents had different styles of how they would do it, and Ernie Pyle was known for that very folksy style, as I was saying before. So I'm curious more about Tregascus' style here. Uh, he seemed to have more of that personal approach, and of course, all of his books contain the word diary, as you mentioned, Guadalcanal diary, invasion diary, Vietnam diary. And while he was covering Guadalcanal, you talk in your book a little bit about this process. He carried these small notebooks in his pockets, and at the end of the day, I guess, would transfer his notes into this black uh, gilt-edged diary every night. So how was his style unique that way? What he tried to do, he was not someone who you're going to turn to for the big 
strategic view of the war, you know, what the plans were from the, like General Marshall in Washington, D.C. You went to Trigascus because you wanted to experience the day-to-day rigors of battle, the day-to-day experiences of being near the front lines or very close to the front lines as he could. As he said, you know, you needed to get up front and get as close as you could to the action. You know, war can be exciting as anything in life, and uh, it's dangerous, uh, but you had to sometimes uh, risk your life. He said, you know, uh, at least he'd get a good story in the process. And so what he tried to do was uh, to uh, go with the men at the front, uh, get their personal stories, and report on what he actually saw. So when you're reading uh, his books, you're experiencing what he experienced on a day-to-day basis. So what you're reading is very accurate because he's only talking about what he's seen personally. And I know that I think it's Richard Frank who wrote the major book on the Battle of Guadalcanal. He was talking uh, about uh, uh, Tregastic's work in Guadalcanal Diary. He said it's very, very accurate because he's only talking about what he saw personally. So he's giving very uh, intricate details about uh, what he sees and what he experiences. Well, we also hear a lot today about those day-to-day experiences of battle that reporters are trying to convey, but that's complicated by the problem of lack of access and how do they work with soldiers and generals who may not always trust them, who may be wary of their motives. And just there's, of course, logistical challenges. It's a dangerous place. And how are you going to traverse all of these different battlefields? So what can you tell us about that? You know, was he concerned about making sure that he is covering the war accurately and completely if maybe the American forces that he's traveling with are limiting his access to certain things? Or how was he working with those men in the field to try to get the most accurate picture as possible? Well, he had great luck. You know, he started out as a war correspondent, very young, 26 years old. And his very first assignment overseas for the INS was covering uh, the secret Doolittle raid, the bombing mission uh, with uh, Jimmy Doolittle's pirates taking off in their B-25 missile bombers off the USS Hornet. So he's on a nearby cruiser watching these bombers uh, take off. He's engaged uh, on the Hornet in the uh, crucial battle of Midway. And then he's there for the first seven weeks of uh, the Battle of Guadalcanal, a very near-run thing uh, with the 1st Marine Division. And uh, for a few weeks, was one of only two civilian reporters, along with Bob Miller of United Press, to be uh, with the troops on Guadalcanal. So he had a real knack for finding where the action was going to be. He was able to ingratiate himself uh, with the troops uh, because they knew that, you know, he was suffering along with them. He was eating the same meals, the same bad rations that the Marines were eating on Guadalcanal. He was being shelled and suffering um, the shock of having the Japanese bomb them uh, every night uh, on the island. Uh, so he suffered along with them. And he went along in various missions uh, with the first uh, Marine Raiders on uh, deep strikes into Japanese-held territory. So that's how he's uh, getting these stories. He's uh, finding the men who are doing the fighting, going along with them uh, as best he could. And he really impressed soldiers both in the Pacific and also in Europe by his ability to uh, report on the action and do it well. 
And they said, you know, one of them soldier said to him, why you're doing this, you know, beats the hell out of me. You don't, you don't have to be here, but you're here. And he said, well, we, you know, of course we have to be here. You know, that's, that's our job. And he saw it as his job uh, to uh, be in harm's way along uh, with the men doing the fighting. Yeah, I mean, you're describing how he certainly showed that bravery, and I guess that makes an impression on the soldiers around him. I'm wondering then, what could a young reporter today learn from Tregascus? Uh, you know, you described how he's suffering the shock of having the Japanese bombing them every night, and so he's also, I guess, experiencing some of the same mental health challenges and emotional trauma that the people he's covering are. How did he deal with that, and are there certain you know steps that you think he took that someone who now is interested in war correspondence uh, life, you know, that they could also follow. I think being open to uh, the experience, uh, being able to uh, connect with the individual soldiers. Of course, it's a little bit easier in World War II when everyone was on the same side. If you're on the American side, you know, you're fighting fascism against Germany, you're fighting the, the Imperial Japanese Empire. Uh, so, you know, everyone's uh, on the same side. It gets a little dicier in other wars, particularly in Vietnam later on, when there's questioning of, you know, should we really be here? Well, that was not a question in World War II that uh, Tregascus and other correspondents had. They, they knew what they were doing um, for the most part. And uh, so Tregascus was able to uh, connect with these individual soldiers and try to tell their stories as, as best he could. Like Pyle, if you read his works, you'll see that he uh, gives, when he's talking to uh, a soldier or Marine, he uh, tries to give you their hometowns. That's something that uh, a lot of correspondents did, not just Ernie Pyle, although he's best known for that. Uh, so he's telling uh, their stories, and I think uh, they recognize the fact that uh, he's trying to uh, put a human face on the war. If you were a soldier in World War II, you're, you're one of just you know millions. You're just a number on your dog tag. And so you appreciate those people uh, who tried to give you back your individuality, as Ernie Pyle did, as Robert Sherrod did and as uh, Tregascus did as well. And I know you talk also in the book about a shift in the style of war reporting um, and journalism in general from when Tregascus was reporting during World War II to Vietnam. So what were some of these changes? Uh, you know, we talked about his very personal style, maybe the changes in access to the front lines. And um, also, of course, there's a big change in the way that Americans are receiving the war in World War II, I imagine newspapers were the dominant form of information. Uh, there may have been newsreels and radio reporting, but I would think that still many people get into newspapers. As we get closer to Vietnam, it's more of a television war. And um, So what are some of those challenges? How is he dealing with maybe that uh, different popularity in media trying to keep his readers engaged? Well, of course, during the Vietnam War, um, he's a little bit different in the fact that he's not writing for a day-to-day -day newspaper audience. He's going there to uh, do a book uh, on his experiences. So he's what I think some of the resident Saigon correspondents would call a paratrooper. He would paratroop in and do his reporting. He wasn't there on a um, you know day-to-day -day basis uh, as they were. So I think that's where some of the tension comes later on. Uh, when he's there with uh, reporters like David Halberstam, uh, Neil Sheehan of the UPI, uh, Malcolm Brown of the Associated Press. Uh, 
who were there, you know, dealing with uh, their sources. They're going out uh, on a daily basis when they can uh, to cover uh, the fighting going on in, in the countryside, dealing with the ZM government and uh, the repressive regime that was. And so they see uh, Tregasas coming in, you know, uh, being treated as a uh, celebrity uh, by uh, Mac V and the U.S. Embassy and giving this grand tour and giving uh, the best of everything. So uh, I think they're a little leery of him and he's a little leery of them because they're not on the team, as it were. Uh, they're questioning sometimes uh, the the uh, uh, South Vietnamese government and also uh, American officials. You know, are we doing the right thing here in Vietnam? And that's something I think that's why he clashed uh, sometimes with those young reporters who were, you know, his same age at that time and covering the Vietnam War as he was in World War II. But now he's an older, uh, a more a celebrated, more secure figure. And uh, so some of those uh, tensions uh, come out in uh, his writing about uh, the Vietnam War in his book, Vietnam Diary. And uh, David Halberstam tells, you know, a famous story about uh, taking a Tregascus, who was one of his heroes. You know, he had read his dispatches as a young man from World War II, taking him out and sharing his sources in the Mekong Delta. And they're, they're coming back from, from a long day of uh, um, going from uh, village to village. And uh, Tregascus says to Halberstam, you know, if I, if I were doing what you were doing, I'd be ashamed of myself. And that's something to really struck that was those words really hurt Halberstam more than uh, some of the uh, rockets he was getting from the folks at the New York Times or from the U.S. Embassy officials. So there's this uh, clash of uh, generations uh, when it comes to the Vietnam War between the, the young reporters and the, the reporters of the World War II generation. Sure. And I imagine some cynicism settling in after decades of covering war. And it's very interesting to think of the breadth of Tregascus's career here that you know, he's covering two of these very differently received conflicts and how you know World War II is obviously a much more popular war at home than Vietnam. Um, like many journalists, Tregascus also aspired to do more than just journalism. He had interests in poetry and fiction and screenwriting. And I'm curious about his non-journalistic pursuits. You know, you do discuss how he never stopped traveling, for instance. So for major magazines such as Collier's and Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, Reader's Digest. And, you know, you might think that he would be getting tired of some of these excursions after you know, facing all of these difficulties in the front, but he still seems very passionate about it, which is why I like to get into motivations. And then he also had this brief career as a screenwriter. So what can you tell us about his non-war reporting career, some of these other writing pursuits? I think after World War II, he was struggling to find that same excitement that he experienced during the wartime. So he was chasing that same, that same feeling uh, in his uh, various uh, pursuits, including a brief stint in Hollywood. And he was very lucky uh, to make a career as a freelance writer and to connect with uh, True Magazine for a time where they send him around the world to find you know, the perfect spot to settle down. So that gives him a wide range uh, of ability to uh, travel and uh, report on various uh, new countries and, and new experiences. Uh, but he never really, I think, caught that excitement and that feeling of belonging that he did in World War II. Uh, but he was able to make a, a career for himself. It cost him a couple of his marriages uh, because, you know, you want someone at home sometimes if, if you're a, a wife or a loved one. And he's out and gone for months at a time. 
and that put a big strain on his marriages. He was finally able to settle down a, a bit uh, near the end of his life in Hawaii. Uh, he uh, married for a third time uh, to uh, Moana uh, Gaskus, who just recently passed away, who was a big help when I was writing my book. And she went along with him as his photographer. So they kind of uh, uh, coordinated. He taught her how to become kind of a war correspondent, dependent on her for her photographs to uh, uh, go along with his uh, articles that he wrote on a freelance basis. So they were quite a, a good team. They made a good team, particularly. Well, and you mentioned now some of the reporting that you did for your own book. Trugaskis died in 1973, decades before you were really working on this project. And so I imagine that many of his contemporaries, at least from the early years of his career, were not around, you know, from World War II. But you did talk about his, you know, his wife being around. Can you talk about that research process? Obviously, when you're writing about journalists, you have their work itself, what was being published in the newspaper, and that's a great help. You had his books. Um, I know there was some archival research that you were doing too, but uh, were there were there people around still who were able to offer any insights or any other sorts of non-traditional sources you were using? Not really. I had to really depend on the archival record, and that's key, of course, if you're doing any kind of uh, nonfiction writing, or particularly biography, you have to go to the source. And I was lucky in that he left behind a treasure trove uh, of documents to uh, look into. Uh, there's a collection at the uh, Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University. Not too surprising because he's a Harvard grad, so it makes sense that his, uh, some of his papers ended up in the Boston area. Uh, but I was also a little surprised to see that uh, a large uh, trove of his materials is at the University of Wyoming in the American Heritage Center out there. And uh, that was a great resource because I found that he had started, uh, before he died, uh, a memoir uh, about his life. And he had finished it up to his time on Guadalcanal. So that was a great resource because uh, there was not a lot of material about his uh, early days as a young man uh, growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And his, uh, you know, his experience with his family and how he became a, a, a reporter uh, working uh, even when he was in uh, uh, some uh, uh, private schools growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He was able to support himself by writing for a variety of Boston area newspapers. He wanted to be a reporter, uh, went to Harvard and uh, wrote for Boston area newspapers while he was there reporting on news from that university and finally was able to connect uh, with some Boston newspapers, went to the International News Service, which uh, was the um, kind of the a low man on the totem pole when it came to news services at that time period. You had AP at the top, uh, United Press kind of in the middle, and the International News Service was uh, uh, the little stepchild trying to uh, uh, compete with the, the bigger organizations where you had one man where AP might send 10 people to cover a story, UP would send like four or five, and you had one person from the INS uh, trying to uh, cover a large area to get their uh, readers' uh, attention for their newspapers across the country. And it was great uh, also because he wrote for the INS that his, uh, because I could use newspapers.com, don't have to do, rely on the old-fashioned microfilm, uh, get myself a headache by scrolling through these old newspapers, but you can just go online. And his um, dispatches, you know, are read all over the country. And that was a great thing because back then, of course, you didn't have television. 
You might have some radio broadcast with news from the front. Uh, but most people uh, who were living in the United States at that time depended on people like Pyle, uh, like Tregascus to get their war news. And uh, so that was a great resource to have. You can see how someone in, in Wyoming, someone in Massachusetts, someone in Michigan is reading his dispatches and getting information about what's going on in the war from them. Well, it's interesting there because you're talking about his far-reaching impact and that people across the country are reading his work. Um, and I wonder why did no one else choose to write a biography about him earlier than you? You may mention some of the deterrence, like, okay, people didn't want to go through microfilm and scroll and scroll. And now a lot of the stuff has been digitized in more recent years. And um, maybe you know, just some people, uh, for whatever reason, they focus on more popular war correspondents like Pyle. And, but uh, do you have any sense of why someone who was so well-read at the time and seemed to have such an impact on his readers didn't have a biography before you came around? Probably because he tells his story so well in his own books that you get a lot of detail from uh, if reading Guadalcanal Diary, if you read Invasion Diary, you think, well, that's the story right there. He's telling the story there. But there's a lot more to find if you go into the actual archives and really dig into them. So there's a lot more to tell. And he had, you know, um, a wide ranging career that's not covered in the book, even after he's wounded, you know, and returns to Europe, uh, covers the uh, Battle of Aachen in Germany. Um, kind of, His nerves are on edge because of his wounding in, in Italy. Uh, but uh, was able to uh, report on the war after the invasion of, of D-Day. Returns to the United States, and you think, well, this is it. You know, he's done all he could, but um, the editors at the Saturday Evening Post, and I uncovered these a variety of articles he did for uh, that national magazine, which was, you know, the magazine at that time. Uh, little Still operating today, but not doesn't have the, the scope that it had back then. You know, they asked him to, to go back to the Pacific, you know, to follow this crew of a B-29 bomber from the United States and all the way to Guam and then on bombing missions against Japan. And they asked him, you know, do you really want to go? He said, not really, but I think I have to go. And he went and he went back. And so that, that's what really impressed me about it. His story does seem inspirational in the sense of somebody who faced a lot of, you mentioned, physical challenges with his diabetes diagnosis, uh, of course, getting injured in the war, and then consistently, though, over the course of decades, wanting to go back, feeling that there was some sort of a mission that he faced to bring this information home. And that's, I think, you know, should motivate a lot of young reporters today who are covering conflict or aspiring to cover very difficult themes at a time when journalism is under attack, um, certainly in our country. So uh, as we kind of wrap up our interview, and we thank you so much for being on the podcast today, I just want to pose a question to you that we ask all our guests on the podcast. Why does journalism history matter? I think it matters because, you know, it's the hoary old thing, you know, the first rough draft of history. And I think that's still true. Uh, I think that um, as my next subject talk, talked about in, in his work, I'm doing a book on Malcolm Brown and the Associated Press and his time in Vietnam. He said, you know, um, there's this uh, battle between truth tellers and truth suppressors. And he wanted to be on the side of the truth tellers. 
and getting that information to the American public so they can decide for themselves on, you know, what's actually going on and that you have to have, um, you know, that sense for the truth as well as uh, the willingness to have a, what he called muddy boots to go out there, actually get your, you know, boots muddy, uh, going out there, slogging through uh, the rice paddies as he did in the Vietnam War or the jungles of Guadalcanal as uh, Tregasius did in World War II to get that story and get it back to the public. Well, well said. We really appreciate your time here today. The book, again, is Richard Tregascus, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam from the University of New Mexico Press. The author is Ray Boomhauer. Thanks again, Ray, for joining us on the Journalism History Podcast. Thank you, Nick. It was great. Thanks for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>